In November 2021, Prince Andrew Romanov, grandnephew of the last Tsar of Russia, Nicholas II, died in California. Royalty watchers would know that he was actually related to over a half a dozen of the old royal families of Europe. He was born in England, lived in Windsor Castle for a while, eventually moved to California in 1949, pursued a number of different careers, and when he retired, he took up art. His favorite medium was shrink art. You probably remember Shrinky Dinks, where you could take sheets of plastic, you could paint them, and when you put them in the oven, they would shrink by about a third and they would kind of be distorted. And in some ways, that was, I guess, thought of as being more artistic than if you just painted on paper directly. And that was shrink art. Well, as it happens, that's how most people and most religions approach the idea of God. If you start out with God, thinking about God as being the sovereign creator of the universe, and what that means in terms of intelligence and power and awesomeness. And you try to sort of box that into a, a frame of some kind, come up with some specific definitions, characteristics or attributes, God's omniscience or omnipresence or omnibenevolence. And you, you try to work with that and figure out how that relates to your personal life or, or to how you want to approach God. It'd be easier if God was in a box or in a frame and, and, and a little smaller. And so much of religion is really about putting God in a box and shrinking God. And so that's today's episode, episode number four of Transition to Hope podcasts, Shrinking God in a Nutshell. Seventy years ago, J.B. Phillips wrote a book about shrinking God called Your God is Too Small. In that book, he took a look at a number of different ways in which people shrink God. I'm going to cover just a few very briefly. It's a good book if you want to pull it. It's available at most libraries. The first one that I'll talk about is God without the Godhead. And that's where the idea of God is depersonalized. God becomes sort of the ultimate reality, just sort of an energy force. Uh, in the case of uh, a Judeo-Christian experience, sometimes the Holy Spirit is depersonified and just thought of as an energy force or a spiritual force without really being a person. Um, and that's one way that God is, is, if you will, shrunk. Another one is called the parental hangover, and that's where we transfer to God our experiences and expectations that come out of our childhood. If someone has had a dysfunctional childhood in particular, where a parent or parents may have been abusive or harsh or cruel, then that, that child has a tendency to look at God in the same way and expect God to be the same way. Not a loving, merciful father, but really a harsh father. Or the other side of the coin is if parents are too indulgent and uh, there's a lot of entitlement and, uh, if you will, spoiled expectations on the part of a child when they uh, come to think about God, they want God to, to function in the same way, provide for their every, every expectation. Absolute perfection is common to quite a few religions where uh, what I do, how I behave has to be perfect, or at least my effort has to be perfect. And no one can really say that they are perfect, and really no one can really say that their effort is perfect. So it creates a, a dilemma when someone shrinks God to that, to the point of, of uh, a, an expectation of absolute perfection. 
God in a Box is similar in that uh, churches and sometimes uh, other and other religious expressions um, they 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 adopt particular ways of, of dressing and, and speaking and drinking and eating that is so strict um, that you can almost tell by looking at them that they belong to a particular group and the the problem there is that then they begin to think that their exclusive manner of dress and their exclusive manner of behavior and what they're allowed to eat and not eat and speak and not speak and who they can talk to and who that that's God and they put God in their little box and no one else has access to God except them. Parental grievance is when uh, we uh, expect God to fix everything. God needs to fix all the people that have been mean to me or bad to me and God needs to fix evil in the world and needs to make everything right and order all of society and you know remove all chaos and and, and basically J.P. Phillips refers to uh, that as, as expecting God to to function as if uh, the world was a well-run kindergarten and if God allows free will, then it's not appropriate to, to, to a, a assign those grievances to God. When they really don't come from God, they come from the expression of free will that, that you see around you. And then, very common, especially for people who are leaving a particular faith expression or religion, when they would say, and you can hear them, usually the, the, the sentence is, my God, and then, you fill in the blank, would do this, would not do this, would allow this, would approve of that, would not approve of that, would be kinder than this, or, or whatever. And what we're doing is we're just creating our own God and projecting it like a thumbnail and projecting that out onto God. Uh, and so it's really, it's really our own creation of God and not really a, a sense of who God truly is. And then the last one that I'll mention from this book there are others, but these are the ones I've selected to talk about briefly, is God for the elite. And you'll recognize this is the idea that, that there are some among us who are more religious. In fact, they might actually be clergy uh, or recognized in some way as clergy and, uh, or, or at least some higher level of, of uh, position within whatever spiritual hierarchy or organizational hierarchy. And they get all the goodies, and the rest of us kind of muddle along. We, you know, kind of hope for the best, hope we can get what we get out of the deal. But, but really, uh, God is a respecter of persons and pays attention to those who are more elite in their religious observance. But as it turns out, God is not shrinkable. If God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, then He is bigger than all of the universe, if you've ever tried to count the number of galaxies, it, it becomes in incredible how huge and awesome and complex the universe is. And for us to try to put God in a box doesn't make a lot of sense. But that has been the project of the human experience. The rebellion, if you will, of the human experience is try to put a frame around God, put God in a box, and that really is the story of Genesis 3, where we have the serpent uh, inviting uh, Adam and Eve to reduce God to something much less than really God. And so the serpent said to the woman, uh, has, God, has God said, and I'll read it in the English Standard Version, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? 
So the first thing the serpent does is question God's word. If God is God and God speaks, I mean, God spoke the universe into existence. When God speaks, that's it. And the serpent comes along and, and questions God's word. And again, from the, uh, I, from, the, from the ESV, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And I don't know if you notice it there, I, I made it bald in the uh, slide, but God didn't say, neither shall you touch it. So what does Eve do? Eve adds to God's word. So God's word is, is everything, because God is everything. Um, but then she sort of uh, superimposes herself and adds to God's word. And so you have this, this effort on the part of the serpent to shrink God. You have the effort on the part of Eve to shrink God. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. In other words, questioning and, and challenging God's word. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, you will be the one who gets to choose what the rules are, what is right and what is wrong. You get to select the morality. And that's really been the effort on the part of the human rebellion throughout the history is that we as humans, we want to decide what's right and wrong. We, we think we already know what's right and wrong. And maybe we do think we know what's right and wrong in our own eyes, but then we are basically growing ourselves and shrinking God as we assume and assert ourselves as the arbiter of right and wrong. So what happens in the process, just as in the, in the story of, garden, of in the Garden of Eden, uh, the human project of rebellion is one about shrinking God and growing who we are. And, that, and that's been reflected in, in all, all of the religions of the world except faith in Christ. Uh, if, if you look, for example, at, at pantheon, pantheism, uh, it's a way of removing God's personhood, so shrinking God in that way, and, and, and basically eliminating the notion of judgment and replacing it with the notion of karma or uh, reincarnation so that we arrive at moksha or nirvana, depending if it's a form of Hinduism or a form of, of Buddhism. Uh, but all of the while, it's shrinking God by removing God's personhood. The same thing we see in uh, polytheism, where uh, we have different expressions of God. We end up embodying those uh, with either people as, as the ancient Greeks did, the ancient Romans, or, or animals uh, as uh, many uh, of the Eastern religions do, Hindu, forms of Hinduism in particular. And so these different expressions uh, or, or idols are equivalent to gods, are considered to be gods. Uh, and, that, and, that, and, and that usurps the real godness, if you will, of, of God. Um, and then you have, and you have a, a belief systems that are performance-based, which means that when we comply with the requirements of the religion, uh, then we are, uh, we are righteous. There's a self-righteousness uh, there that's self-derived. It's, it's homegrown. It's not, it's not emanating from God or coming from God. And then there is syncretism of all the very, uh, various kinds of expressions of ritualistic religions where different rituals are, uh, are adopted, whether they're religious sim symbolism or other f uh, kinds of symbolism like Freemasonry. 
and and what this does is it again gives us control over our human nature, our character, uh, and our human nature. And we're not looking to God uh, for righteousness; uh, we're looking to ourselves. And then there's what I call positivism. This just this uh, happy talk idea that if I can just uh, name it and claim it and hang it and frame it, if I can speak truth, uh, then I then I can acquire truth. Uh, and it's uh, and it's yeah, it, it's very similar to you have in, in nature religions where we're we're getting control over circumstances, control over in a sense God, control over nature in the process. And then. Uh, a recently derived term from uh, 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 Christian Smith, uh, moralistic therapeutic de deism, uh, and, and that basically shrinks God down to, to being able to say, well, I can be pretty much good, I can figure this out, I can live a good life and be a good person. Uh, God is there and is available, but not really necessary to, to my project of goodness. Secularism, where we compartmentalize, if not completely eliminate, Religion, we might think of it as a resource, but that's about as good as it gets. Materialism in the sense of there being no supernatural, there only being natural or material uh, existence. So there's no transcendent reality. Uh, and so we can use uh, human reason without any re reference to or reliance upon God. Uh, and then top-down prophetic kinds of religious cultures and expressions where communi communication with God is limited to the elite, to the prophets or whomever. Uh, and so the prophet and the prophets chosen are exalted and anyone they might want to bring along, it's kind of up to them. Finally, you have a belief system called following Christ, being a follower of Christ, which is really not a religious system in the sense that it's not dependent upon human effort or human articulation. Uh, God is sovereign. It's uh, The Christian faith, uh, if you will, leaves God on his throne, leaves God uh, in, with all the majesty and glory that it, that is his and it is deserved, deservedly his. And uh, instead of exalting oneself, uh, we, we exalt Christ. And so, uh, and so it, it really is different. It's a reversal of the project that was started in the rebellion in the, in the Garden of Eden. So uh, if you look at, uh, some of this may have resonated if you're thinking about the LDS Church and Mormonism proper, uh, the, the sense of God shrinking. I'll, I'll just uh, point to a couple. Uh, first of all, com it's compliance driven. Uh, and so there, there's the self-righteousness, the self-worthiness that's required in order to participate in the temple ordinances and therefore uh, uh, arrive at the celestial, highest level of celestial uh, kingdom. It is subject to prophetic fiat, whatever the prophet says goes. Uh, uh, within a sort of human bureaucracy. So God is sort of reduced down to this sort of human bureaucracy uh, governed by, uh, you know, a prophet and a council. Uh, and then the anthropomorphization, if you can say that, uh, clearly embodiment of God uh, without transcendence. So there's this idea that, that in one of the versions or one or two of the several half a dozen versions of the first vision of Joseph Smith where God the Father and God the Son appear both embodied if you will and uh, and that kind of uh, fits into the sort of polytheistic notion of uh, embodiment uh, and godlike uh, uh, maturation that is part of the narrative of the uh, Mormon expression 
So uh, if, you, if you look in the book, uh, Your God is Too Small, written 70 years ago, you see a lot of, of things that resonate with uh, what we see in the LDS church. And what it really boils down to is shrinking God. Uh, and, and even though there can be reverence for God, it can be great devotion and reverence and even worship, but it's reverence and devotion and worship of a shrunken God in the sense that we have reduced God to the confines of the, the little box uh, called the LDS Church. And it's difficult to uh, deal with God outside of that little box because it's considered to be the restoration and the prophetic expression of God's church here on earth. But God is bigger than that. The book of Job is really a, it's really, it's the oldest book in, the, in, in terms of the manuscript uh, evidence. It's, it's chronologically the oldest book of the Bible that we have. And it is a book that spends about 39 chapters on discussing what it means to be righteous, uh, what it means to be worthy uh, in God's eyes. But at the end of the day, uh, at the end of the book, uh, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile in, in comparison to God and God's holiness and his majesty and glory. He says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once I have, once I have, have I spoken, but I will not answer, yea, twice, but it will proceed no further. If you look at the English Standard Version, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no more. I got nothing. I'm going to put my hand over my mouth. And that is respecting God for who God really is. It's not replacing God with uh, some kind of uh, righteousness, some kind of self-worthiness. It's recognizing that God is really God. And uh, as, as Jesus said, not that any man has seen the Father, save which is of God. And I'll, I'll move, to, move forward to the English Standard Version. Um, uh, so not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. That would be Jesus Christ. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So Jesus is the, is the pathway. It's not righteousness. It's not all of the different kinds of ways that we shrink God so that we can manage the situation. Jesus said, I am the bread of, the, and the light, of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. So if you want to not die, it's, it's, it's not about uh, disbelieving God. It's about trusting Jesus. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And, that, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so when it comes right down to it, there is no righteousness, there is no worthiness test, there is no quiz that we can take uh, that can replace who God is. We can try to reduce God down to a box where we can manage it. We can say, well, my God this, my God that. Well, that's your little box, God. 
Uh, or we can just reduce God to nothing and eliminate God altogether and say, you know what, it, it does, it, I'm not going to let it make sense to me. I'm not going to uh, reason about it. And either way, either if you're putting God in a box or if you're just eliminating God together, uh, altogether, it's the same result. And so the grand story of humankind is fairly simple. God is God. He created humans. Humans are rebellious. We want to be God. We want to shrink God. We want to apply our shrinky dink to God, reduce God down to the size where God is manageable, and then God isn't God in our lives anymore. We have shrunk God. That's the basic human project that is addressed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I would just like to, to close this episode with uh, some words from Paul in his letter to the Ephesians because I think it, it sort of uh, elevates the idea of God well. And so uh, this is my basically my prayer for you, whether you're viewing this on YouTube or Facebook or you're listening to it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you're uh, receiving this uh, message. Uh, I think these words sum it up well in terms of establishing the idea of the greatness of God and what that really means. So, so Paul says in Ephesians, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Thank you. This has been Transition to Hope with your host, Dr. Albert Spaulding. We care deeply about folks who are experiencing a faith crisis or who are trying to help a friend or fellow ward member sort through their shelf of questions. We want to be a positive and helpful resource for you. If you'd like to talk through your doubts, questions, or concerns in a safe and non-threatening dialogue, please reach out to us at our contact page at www.transitiontohope.org. You can also find show notes for today's podcast and other helpful information at our website. And if you'd care to donate to Transition to Hope, you can do so at the donate button. We'd love it if you would subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating. Meanwhile, we won't try to do your thinking for you, but we'd love to stand with you and be a resource for you as you seek coherent answers to life's big questions. Most of all, we care deeply about your faith journey. We want to help you transition to hope.